0: Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown, a look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing the creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. So the
1: purpose of having a national bank, which which Hamilton pioneered, uh, is to emit large-scale credit. It's to be a, a, a servant of the people, to be an instrument of the nation state for the purpose of pulling people out of poverty, enhancing the powers of productivity, investing in large-scale, large scale, long term projects that normally private finance would never have the patience or be willing to take the sorts of risk that one would need to take to build an Erie canal. Although that was partially funded by private finance, but it was an initiative that involved the sovereign backing of the state.
0: That's Matthew Errett, a consummate historian and observer of the real stories behind the cultural and economic tenets and systems that we've inherited in the landmarks of our society. Today, Ellen talks with Matt about the evolving principles and vested interests that animated the American Revolution and the international intrigue that accompanied it. Hello, I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's co-host and senior advisor to the Public Banking Institute. On this program, we try to focus on the relevant drivers of our current monetary and economic realities, understanding that what we see around us in government policy and the economy isn't necessarily what's at play behind the curtain of finance. We like the Wizard of Oz metaphor. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. So, we like to pay attention to what's behind that curtain. And with a guest like Matt Arendt, whose new book, The Clash of Two Americas, Volume 2, The Unfinished Symphony, we get an extraordinary tour of the historical landscape that created our economic and political history. There's so much to tell, and Matt does such a thorough job in telling it, that we're going to cover this material in two segments of the program. In the last half of today's show, we complete our conversation with Dr. Thomas Marwa, a global scholar on public banking at the University College of London. Thomas's new book is called Public Banks, Decarbonization, Definancialization, and Democratization, which describes in part how public banks around the world have taken a leadership role in investing in initiatives for green energy production. Even though public banks have fewer assets than the private money banks, They outperform them in the amount of investment given to this critical task, yet another example of how public banks excel in meeting the rising and changing demands of public interest. Now let's join Ellen and her conversation with author and historian Matt Eret, looking at the foundations of our national economic and political history.
2: my pleasure to be speaking with Matthew Errett, who is editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review and co-founder of the Montreal-based Rising Tide Foundation. He's written uh, hundreds of articles ahead of me, I think, and uh, at least six books. I count six books. The latest is The Clash of Two Americas, Volume 2, The Unfinished Symphony. So we We interviewed you earlier on volume one, so now we're picking up with uh, the death of McKinley around 1900. Uh, Greetings. (laughs) Good to talk to you, Uh, Alan. You you call it the two Americas. Now, obviously, you're not talking about North America, South America. I mean, you're talking about the two faces that the United States has presented to the world, like over the last 300 years one is benign, and one is. Sort of more uh, imperial or anyway, do you want to explain what you mean by the two Americas? And...
1: Well, speaking as a Canadian, um, since I'm, I'm based in Montreal and, and I run the Canadian Patriot Review, um, I got to tell you, like going through the education system here, I was wired at a very young age before I had any real political awareness of anything to hate and kind of fear Uh, the United States. And that's just something that is built into, for many generations, the educational process for Canadians. This goes back, I think, over well over 150 years. It's gotten really bad, though. So there's a a certain image painted of the USA as the the empire, the global supervillain of sorts, which, unfortunately, when you look at the behavior of the United States, especially since the murder of John F. Kennedy and his brother, um, it has increasingly lived up to those very negative expectations. So it sort of played into um, this, I'll use a harsh word, demonic sort of imagery that we're being fed. And Canadians are, are often told that's all it is. There's nothing else. Since 1776, when we were enlightened enough to avoid being a part of a messy, bloody revolution that didn't need to happen, we are told, because if we just waited with patience from our slightly overbearing um, you know, mother country, Great Britain, she would have naturally abolished slavery and given us our freedoms anyway. We didn't have to go through that type of destructive process to create a republic. We're happy being a constitutional monarchy. That's that's what we are. And um, this unidimensional image of the USA is presented, and it creates... For me, at least, it it took me a long time before I started realizing that no, 1776 and the events that were put into motion by Benjamin Franklin and many of his collaborators. And in our last interview on on my volume one, we talked about the international dynamics surrounding the events of 1775 to 83, which involved people within high positions of influence, obviously in France, we know that, but also within Spain, within uh, Germany Prussia uh, Poland uh, Ireland India we had the the Hyder Ali and the Mysore rebellion that were were that saw themselves in a common fight against the British empire to create a new type of world wh- wh- which is the point the Muslim Hyder Ali rebellion <laughs> against the British empire which absorbed you know like something like 20% of the British uh, military fleets into trying to put that down Hyder Ali's son Tipu Sultan had written letters To the Continental Congress saying, we are in this together for a new world. Russia, you know, Catherine the Great was organized through her her colleague, who was the woman who was the head of the Russian Academy of Sciences and a great friend of Ben Franklin, who he met in France. Morocco, the, the, you know, Sidi Mohammed, the emperor of Morocco, was also organized by Benjamin Franklin's networks to also give protection to American ships against Barbary pirates that were under the influence of the British Empire. So, you know, it was an international dynamic. And so we're not given any of that. And I don't even think Americans are really given that anymore. Uh, maybe it was known in previous generations a bit more, but today it's, it's, it's obscured. But so you start looking into, well, what is the United States? Why do these American presidents, why do so many of them die while in office? You know, eight of them. Um, and if you add in Alexander Hamilton, who was shot, who had presidential material, uh, who was shot and killed by Aaron Burr, the guy who basically was the founding father of Wall Street, the creator of the Bank of Manhattan, before he escaped to, to, the, to London, for five years uh, to avoid going to prison. Why did all of these Americans get shot? What's the common denominator going all the way up to John F. Kennedy and his brother and, and Martin Luther King? What, what is there a common sort of policy that they're tapping into and channeling? And, and sure enough, when the more you start pursuing that uh, question, the more discoveries are to be found. And so in the course of b- volume one, which tackled 1776 to 19, 1890, it uh, dealt with that period of history in looking at, you know, sometimes people today have given it the term deep state, you know, and every country has its own deep state, you know, something that is embedded within the structures of power, academia, media, um, military affairs, banking, that is interconnected. It's, it's different parts of the same beast, and we have it in Canada, we have it in the U.S., we have it in, in ev- almost every country. I think every country, you could find aspects of this type of thing. And so I tried to paint the picture of some of the drama that is lesser appreciated around the civil war, around uh, the battle to just how did America grow from 13 colonies to being the thing we know of it as today? How did that happen? Was there a fight? Were there different intentions, different political agencies? And and so there are two traditions two opposing currents. And when you do look at the deaths of those greater American uh, leaders, from Warren Harding, I mean that's that's a 20th century one, but you can go to Harrison, uh, Zachary Taylor, Lincoln. You could look at uh, even even people like Vice President Garrett Garrett Hobart, uh, under McKinley and McKinley himself and Garfield, or you know all of these great leaders who tend to die while in office are are actually invoking what you have written about quite a bit, which I found very inspiring, um, which is a certain principle of constitutional banking, constitutional. Uh, foreign policy, like the idea that the Constitution is not just ink on parchment, but it is a governing principle of finance, of foreign policy, of cultural policy, of the general welfare, right? And that all people are endowed with certain inalienable rights. That's in the, the Declaration of Independence. And, uh, and so the purpose of having a national bank, which, which Hamilton pioneered, uh, is to emit large scale credit. It's to be a, a, a servant of the people, to be an instrument of the nation state for the purpose of pulling people out of poverty, enhancing the powers of productivity, investing in large-scale long-term projects that normally private finance would never have the patience or be willing to take the sorts of risk that one would need to take to build an Erie Canal. Although that was partially funded by, by private finance, but it was an initiative that involved the sovereign uh, backing of the, of the state or the transcontinental railway, or more recently things like the Apollo space program or things like that. You need to have that initiative that is taken by a sovereign nation state. So in volume two, which is called Open Versus Closed Systems Collide, with a picture of uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski and John F. Kennedy, a painting of him with an explosion in between, I try to just get across from 1890 until the present time, how this has played out, especially with the uh, death, the murder of William McKinley.
2: Yeah. You also called it a Republicanism versus the hereditary, you know, two systems of control. One is hereditary, meaning like the king or, you know, something totally top down. And yeah. then Republican being that we are all sovereign and like all, like every race, et cetera, and uh, with certain inalienable rights. So it's not they're not even built into the Constitution. They're actually something that you're born with all those freedoms are i think that's what attracts people to the the american model what detracts all the immigrants here is that it's a form of freedom that they didn't realize didn't have at home with with their own um, top down sort of governments
1: yeah exactly yeah and 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 we underestimate just what a revolution of morality that was to be able to create a nation founded upon the idea of a rejection of hereditary rights like because before the American Republic was in, was set up, all the world knew were systems of governments founded upon I'm born into a, a certain family and that simple birthright gives me the right to take away or bestow rights on the the slave families, people born into the lower caste. It was a caste structure. With certain titles of nobility and things that just you know enhance the egotistical uh, elitism, which is just always the the fertile soil for for corruption is a, a sense of of elitism that you know we are sovereign and, and all of the, the the oligarchical systems before the United States organized themselves around certain hereditary institutions. You know you had one sovereign, you had one king or queen who like the Prima Inter Pares, the first among equals, and they were the ones who then again, like in the Canadian constitutions, not that we really have a constitution, but in our charter, you know, our, our series of charters going back to the 18th century, we got a whole series of these things that really just portray, including the the, the British North America Act or the uh, 1982 charter. They say that we have these rights. It seems right for life, liberty, happiness, like things that are very similar to that of the United States, but it's not recognized as inalienable. Her Majesty. Has bestowed upon us, and you know, in our constitution, it says that our nation will be uh, enshrined as a constitution. This is the 1867 version for the benefit and interests of the British Empire. How is that a nation? You know, versus the United States, which is for the general welfare of the people. For by, a nation for by and of the people is a very different concept. So, unfortunately, the U.S. has not always acted the part. Of its ideals, as is you know often the case with all of us, we have ideals, and we go through times in our lives where we sometimes make bad decisions. We find addictions that take more and more control of us as personalities, and we can decay. We can go on a bad path, and if we're fortunate enough to develop to discover some humility, we can um, get back to our senses and make reparations for ourselves. Get back onto the right path. Um, A nation state has a lot of similarities to a personality in that sense, except the nation state transcends individual lifespans, right? So we see the US has at different times gone through periods of perfectibility, uh, improvement of itself, of its people and of its future by creating sacrifices for the future generations. And then you have periods of decline of where, where it got onto the wrong track. And usually you'll find that those periods of corruption didn't come naturally, but came through a lot of effort. There's a lot of work that was required to set the US on a different path. And if you look at who takes over, usually the, the positions of power structures after the death of a, or the murder of an Abraham Lincoln. And in my books, I've gone through how that was orchestrated by British intelligence, working with Confederate intelligence in Montreal, Canada, where I live. Sorry about that. If you look at what type of machine took power with Lincoln's murder and especially McKinley's murder yeah. 35 or so years later in 1901 there was uh, you, you can get a sense of of how the US was brought into a sort of power relationship with its arch nemesis the British empire and this is the case with Teddy Roosevelt who, with increasingly Woodrow Wilson was a reemergence of a racist impulse where the slave power the slaveocracy of this of the Confederate South was re- repowered things like the KKK were created protected and that blossomed for an internal corruption, along with things like a secret police force set up under Teddy Roosevelt's called that came to be known as the FBI. And, and also like a, an idea of an Anglo-American special relationship, that it is our racist Anglo-Saxon rights with the British to rule the world together. Um, that was, again, what, what was brought in after McKinley was killed. And same thing when Franklin Roosevelt died, who was against imperialism. He, Franklin Roosevelt, just like McKinley or Warren Harding or even Lincoln, had a vision of destroying the hereditary structures and empires from the earth by helping poor countries who had been victimized to develop the means, not just give them money or give them some fish, but provide them the means to learn how to fish, to, to give them industrial uh, sovereignty through large scale loans that would be internationalized. And when Roosevelt died, same sort of thing happened. You know, the the patriots who understood the nature of what this this corruption was in Wall Street with with military intelligence, with the FBI and everything else, they were purged. All of FDR's allies who shared his vision of a U.S.-China-Russia alliance for the post-war age that would help poor countries develop their infrastructure along the lines of what we saw with the, the Tennessee Valley Authority inside of the United States. I mean, people like Kwame Nkrumah leaders of the Pan-African movement, leaders from South America came, right, in the 1930s to study how did America go from backwater illiteracy in the Tennessee and much of the South to becoming an industrial aerospace pioneer through things like the rural electrification projects that were funded by not Wall Street, but the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which became sort of a, a government entity that acted much like a national bank should act. That was all undone when Roosevelt died a little bit too early, I might add, under very questionable circumstances, no autopsy was done. So anybody who tries to just tell me, just don't think about it. It was a brain hemorrhage or heart failure or something. There was never an autopsy. So I don't care what people say. That's you can't know that. Um, But what you can know is that Stalin did tell Churchill's son, Elliot, that it was Churchill's people who uh, did it just like they had been trying as as Stalin is, is recorded in this interview is having said, just like he uh, suspected, they were also doing the same to him. Um, you know, you've got a lot of circumstantial evidence, but the, the key point of evidence isn't so much the, the conspiracy theory side of things, it's really what changed policy-wise. And sure enough, when Truman came in, just like when, when Teddy came in as the, you know, notoriously corrupt, idiotic uh, vice president under McKinley, same thing with with Truman, who was again, a racist little man, He was an Anglophile. He he adored how the British were able to just dominate the world. And, you know, they purged the OSS, got rid of all of FDR's allies in positions of influence, and very quickly created things like the CIA in 1947, the Truman Doctrine, to start encouraging the U.S. instead of working with its allies that it, it it, it needed to put the fascist machine down, like China and Russia, who, again suffered the most in World War II fighting fascism, they were now going to be relabeled as the new global supervillains. And Churchill was, was more than happy to oblige by coming to Missouri and giving his famous Iron Curtain speech on how the British orchestrated this Iron Curtain, much like what we see today with you know, things like the Democracy Summit, which half of the world's countries are not invited. They've been excluded from this new Democracy Summit that's now happening this week Again, a new Iron Curtain idea of taking the people that you worked with and making them your enemies. And bombs were unnecessarily dropped after FDR died onto a defeated Japan. Um, This is very well known that uh, Japan had already begun backdoor peace negotiations to try to like surrender and save face. That was all ignored, and bombs were unnecessarily dropped as a a real statement to the Soviets and to anybody, frankly, that the new game in town was not going to be FDR's vision of of a world of international new deals, building and ending poverty, according to the idea of the four freedoms, you know, which Henry Wallace shared, as did Henry, Harry Dexter White, the first founder of the IMF, who was working very closely with Wallace and FDR, again, who also died mysteriously in 1948. So again, there was this huge battle. And there's these incredible stories in the early days, especially the early 15 years, 16 years after World War II had ended which I try to tell in act three of my book.
2: Uh, so thanks. Yeah. We're particularly focused of course on the money issues Yeah, and bringing it forward to what, how it's relevant today. It seems to me that the two Americas we have today or the, the side that's sort of the Imperial side is no longer one monarch. It's fascism really. I mean, it's a, cor- a corporate takeover or big, big corporations are in power together. So we got the World Economic Forum. So just following the finances, it seems to me that that same money power is still basically in control, or or maybe it's the same mindset. I don't know, but they never really gave up. I mean, not the British, the nice British people that we know, that's not what we're talking about. But the British money power, the, the British banking power never really gave up. I mean, they their whole model, of course, is well. What I write about is that they they create the money. I mean, banks in general create the money uh, as loans, and they always require more back than they put out there. So invariably, they're going to wind up with all the property with all the yes. money. So yes. and, you know, eventually, it get, get the debt gets to be too big, or you have too much speculation. Like in 1929, we had the same thing going on that. That we had in the two, you know, two thousand eight, where you have all the speculation, and then suddenly it collapses, and the insiders who still have money uh, can buy up every, you know, buy things up cheaply, and right, we're seeing that in spades right now, where yeah. they the billionaire class is buying up everything. They're buying up the land, they're buying up the water, and they're calling it, <laughs> um, you know, for. For the benefit of, of nature, which obviously is not true, so, yeah. so we are going to be in the position of you will own nothing and be happy. Maybe if we're happy, old it's old. because they're going to be pumping us full of drugs. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we <now>, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not our nature to be happy with having nothing and having no so rights. Have
1: a nice little plot of land in your alternative world, uh, run by you know Mark yeah, VR machines, um, yeah, your which you can world. now, yeah, they're saying you can now invest in these plots of land and, and you can now have like real estate speculation in this alternative virtual universe of, in of the metaverse, oh, I
2: didn't and in the metaverse
1: you can now own <laughs> land and, and get, you know, yeah. So they're creating a new speculative bubble, even further detached from reality. If that was possible, I did. I thought it was about as far removed from reality as it could be <laughs> with modern derivatives, but no, they're going further. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, Uh, And and one thing interesting you wrote about was uh, that FDR was not a Keynesian and that Keynes was really another one of these big Brit, uh, you you know, the British money people. So do you want to explain that what the real dichotomy is versus what we've been led to believe?
1: Yeah, that'll freak a lot of people out, and it and it does. Uh, it pisses a lot of people off when I bring this up. But I, you know, that's that's uh, chapter uh, sixteen, the ugly truth of John Maynard Keynes and the Battle of Bretton Woods. Um, it's a longer uh, chapter in my book. But no, yeah, it, it, there's been a you 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 touched on the world economic Forum. so I'm just going to run with that for a second. Um, but you know there's not just the idea that you'll own nothing and be and and be happy in a great reset but there's an idea of a great narrative that's also been launched the great narrative project that has been launched by Klaus Schwab uh bringing together the world's billionaires and philosophers at least those who are acceptable to the you know the class that they're beholden to 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 spin new comprehensive cohesive narratives for the future of humanity um a lot of transhumanists are involved in this as well um And this gets, it gets nasty, but narrative, this is not a new thing. So narrative construction and the weaving of tales is a part of our human collective experience. Um, The question has always been, are the narratives that we are being, uh, that are being created um, stories that edify and give us better access to our full potentials of actualizing our moral conscience, our minds that are in tune with our, our conscience and our hearts which is what, you know, a, what they call a well-integrated person, a mature person, right? Where our bodies are always going to grow, but it's, it's not necessarily the case that our minds and our emotions will also mature in harmony with our bodies. That's a maybe. It should be. We're happier when they do, but it's, it's rarer. And when you live under an empire, and unfortunately, most of human society, we've never escaped empire. We've always had this latching onto us as a parasite for recorded human civilization, and it's taken different forms, but there's certain invariants, certain common characteristics. One of those is the crushing of our ability to actualize our true creative potential, our goodness as much as possible. And so we're told, you know, yeah, we've had these Leonardo da Vinci's and we've had these Beethoven's and Kepler's and, but those are the special geniuses that are, that are not the normal. Everybody else is destined to a life of normal, but it's like, what is normal? Right. Maybe those have, have actually been natural, normal people, and the masses, Right, what is popular, has tended to be the unnatural state of those who have not been given the ability to properly experience who they are. Da Vinci, for example, never had to compartmentalize anything. Right, He learned early on how to find a love and a passion for truth. In a very flexible way, to saw the universality in music, in optics, in machinery, in painting, and so you have what are called Renaissance people, right? Um, And I'm I'm doing this in a circuitous way, but I'm going to get back to your (laughs) question, I promise. So the great narrative thing is really do these narratives, these stories, bring that help us bring that about? Because some stories do that, you know. Um, I'd say many of the best religions, what makes them good and powerful is that they have stories that will allow people enhance our ability to tap into those better sides of ourselves and then or will it be based upon the an imperial power structure or, or imperial set of high priests who will weave stories that will destroy that ability so i'm saying all of this in a in a non-linear way and i'm so sorry i'm gonna get back to your your keen's question okay so we've been told fdr was a keynesian that's what we were told um and in my chapter in several chapters i get across how not only was FDR anti-Keynesian, but Keynes also directly thought FDR was a, an incompetent uh, when it comes to economics and he wrote as much. It's recorded by Francis Perkins, uh, a very close ally of FDR. FDR also thought and openly stated that Keynes was not, an, not a real economist, but simply a mathematician with fetishes. Um, and when you start looking at the real Keynes as a eugenicist, somebody who was a, a devout member of the eugenics society, uh, who was a, a complete racist and he, you could read his quotes that I cite. This guy really, really, really was was up there. Uh, a, a devout Malthusian believed completely that the purpose of government and, and banking, well he thought the purpose of government was to be subservient to the higher supranational interests of finance, of central banks. So he was a central banker and he wasn't he didn't believe in the nation state. He thought that that had to ultimately go, but that ultimately the purpose of law and economic policy, was to advance population control. He was also a pedophile too, but that's another story. Um, now in Bretton Woods, he was there representing the British Empire. That was his position. So you know Churchill, on the one hand, represented a more right-wing, conservative view of the old-school British Empire of you know, hail Britannia, Britannia rules the, wave, the waves, crush, crush the natives. You know, the the Reds and the he was just openly, just vitriolically racist and bad. He old-school. British imperialists, whereas Keynes was more of what you'd, you'd consider the uh, the Fabian society, play it slow, be subtle, be more sophisticated approach, which is ultimately what won out. So they tried, you know, like World War I, and I, I get through how World War I and World War II were artificial orchestrations to destroy a process internationally. And it's all about starting, start global, just like in 1776, you know, start with the global chemistry first, what were the terms shaping the world, and then go down and isolate and, and analyze the parts from the whole first, right? Um, so it was the same thing in with the murder of McKinley. It wasn't just McKinley dying. McKinley represented an international movement uh, who were all working to bring about a world of cooperating sovereign nation state republics, that would be cooperating around big projects like rail specifically. The, the Trans-Siberian Railway was a big one modeled on the U.S. Transcontinental Railway, which was completed. People who were representing FDR um, at the time, it was primarily Morgenthau and, uh, and Harry Dexter White. They were successful in uh, in not giving an in- Well, they gave some inches, but they made sure that Keynes didn't get what he wanted. And instead, it was the, the post-war currency was was premised around a fixed exchange rate to um, make it impossible to conduct uh, currency speculation, that went, that went back a very long time, uh, speculative warfare, currency speculation to as a form of keeping your victim country on their knees and not standing on their own two feet. The right of every country to have access to protectionism was also enshrined as a principle of, of action. And the idea of the IMF and the World Bank in those days was to serve as simply as instruments to be kind of like international uh, reconstruction finance corporations, to, to provide long-term credit for, for big projects that would pull people out of poverty and, and provide the means of helping yourself, right, around the world. And, uh, and luckily, Keynes lost that battle, but as I mentioned before, you know, these allies of FDR were purged Wallace was ousted and Harry Dexter White was campaigning for Wallace when Wallace was basically fighting against the Cold War doctrine and trying to say, no, let's actually work with Russia, work with China like FDR intended. And by him doing that, and also warning that the fascists in America who had funded Hitler, he was actually, there's speeches where he's actually calling them out while he's commerce secretary, the former vice president under FDR. He's downgraded, but he's still a power. And he's literally calling out these same fascists, are preparing for Anglo-American imperialism and a war with Russia that will destroy the world. And he's, he's basically saying saying it openly, and that's why he's fired, and he runs for president. And Harry, Harry Dexter White, the first IMF director, is campaigning for him. And uh, yeah, he dies um, after he's being called a red commie traitor and, and being dragged over into the House of Un-American Activities. Um, as are many of the, the greatest American patriots. They're all they're, they're systematically destroyed and slandered beyond belief. But uh, no, Keynes certainly was not what we're told he is, and, and FDR was not a Keynesian. Um, he was a, a direct follower of the American system of political economy. And I, I have a chapter in there going through the networks that were working with Roosevelt from both parties, Democrat and Republican, who represented the Abraham Lincoln, McKinley, and even Warren Harding' policy orientation towards pro protectionism, large scale credit, all of these things that define the American system of political economy. Um, so yeah, he was not that. And so the whole Keynes thing was was created to obscure that. As is the opposing view that uh, you know Americans are told you have a choice. You could either be a Keynesian, which is like that's usually it means you're going to become a Democrat, or you're going to become a, a follower of the Austrian school of von Hayek, and then you're going to be probably you know a Republican. we're told fit into one of these two boxes, you know, but it's like both of these boxes. What was Frederick von Hayek? The whole Hayek versus Keynes debate was cooked up at the end of 1932 when it was apparent that Roosevelt was about to win the presidency. And it was created as a way to create an artificial polarization, right? Where you're told either you're for absolute individual liberty, and that's going to define what's good Is, is the government just getting off your back and letting everybody just do what they want and let the market hidden hands, invisible hands organize themselves mystically, which never works, by the way. That's even when Adam Smith was commissioned by the British Empire to promote that idea with the Wealth of Nations in 1776, not a coincidence. He was working for the British Empire. He was commissioned to promote and to create an argument for why the United States should not have any say over its economic destiny and just let the markets be. And meanwhile, the British East India Company and the the private financial houses They don't get, they don't care. They're happy to walk into your house when your guard is down, your doors unlocked and just steal everything. That's why free trade existed, at least on that scale. The the repackaging of Adam Smith under the, the Habsburg dynasty, under Karl Menger, right? The guy who created the Austrian school, it was just a repackaging of Smith on behalf of, he was the retainer of the Habsburg empire. That's why they call it the Austrian school. All of these guys are von this, von that, Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich von Hayek. They're all like part of the nobility try to promote our freedoms. And it's like, no, these guys were all, this was a false debate created by the London School of Economics. And everyone was told either you're for big government arbitrarily spending, the way Keane says, to just make the economy's engine rev again when you have an economic crisis, or let the government just get it off your back, let people just do what they're going to do and spend what they're going to spend. And that will just stimulate the economy. Neither one works. They're both traps. You will, you will be raped in both cases. <laughs> and that is indeed what happened in, uh, throughout the, the remaining, you know, 70 years of the Cold War.
0: That's Matthew Eret, editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review and co-founder of the Montreal-based Rising Tide Foundation. We'll complete this conversation with Matt and Ellen and dig deeper into the historical dynamics of the United States founding and economics on the next edition of It's Our Money. <laughs> public banks have been making an outsized impact on investments in green and renewable energies around the world our guest now is dr thomas marwa who was on this program a few weeks ago he rejoins us today to take a closer look at how these banks make those impacts My conversation with Thomas was taken from a TV interview in which we reviewed his new book, Public Banks, Decarbonization, Definancialization, and Democratization.
3: In in areas like sort of global decarbonization or green and just transitions, I often say that, you know, public banks are the linchpin for this, that we're not going to get there unless public banks are in some way involved or in many ways catalyzing meaning this change for decarbonization or global green and just transformations and there are many ways that public banks both development banks or infrastructure banks but also you know uh, more local community banks that are still publicly owned or cooperatively owned are are at the forefront of this mm-hmm. and infrastructure is certainly one way and it's uh, historic, you know, in many cases, public banks have been involved in infrastructure, the building of roads, the building of transportation, municipal infrastructure, um, hospitals, schools, you know, the list goes on, we know know, know all of that. Um, In terms of offering supportive, what we can call patient or long-term loans at affordable rates, at conditions that enable public authorities or municipalities or states or national governments even to provide the infrastructure that society needs stably without risk of the investor pulling out and destabilizing the project or demanding certain conditions of it that then undermine the, the ability of a community to build the best infrastructure possible. And there's, you know, there's so many examples we can look at, to be honest. Um, I often like you to, there's this bank called the Nordic Investment Bank, which is a multinational bank, relatively small, you know, that's about five, six billion uh, euros a year in the north, it's owned by the uh, Nordic communities plus the Baltic
0: ones. Uh, it's called, it's Nordic, N-O-R-D-I-K?
3: Yeah, the Nordic Investment Bank, okay. uh, Sweden, nice. Finland, Norway, Iceland, um, uh-huh i uh, forgetting what country. <laughs> anyway, um, but they, they, they've invested in sort of green, sustainable um, uh, hydro energy in, in, in a northern community to supply green, renewable energy to several municipalities. But they also built the station, um, and there's I have pictures of it in some work that I've done in the past, I think a 2017 paper for the Transnational Institute, where they built the station where they're generating it, and, and got a special architect to make it beautiful. And it is yeah. a stunning installation yeah. of renewable energy. And their logic was to inspire the youth of the country to hike up there and see how you can generate wow. renewable energy. And then it become that in itself become a transformational moment uh, of, of, of what you, know, you can do with public money for the future. You can look at other institutions, uh, there's an, another brand new institution called the, the Finnish um, Climate Fund that mm-hmm. has set very firm floor where basically it says we're not going to fund any investment, public or private, unless you first demonstrate to us that you're going to decarbonize the environment. And so it sets this condition It's right. a foundation for investment and then moves forward from there, uh, you know, in terms of looking at, you know, the, the viability of it, what kind of impact it's going to have for jobs and so on. But they, they're, in many ways, it's, it's, it's endless, um, you know, in, in there, we, we can, as far as our sort of imagination and what our demands of our community are, we can craft a public bank to confront and address those challenges in ways that are green and societally equi- equitable and sustainable financially and even profitable for the community in which it, it exists.
0: Yeah. So the, in the U.S., uh, green banks, what are called green banks, uh, are basically public-private partnerships or they, they have some perhaps some public funding. But then as an agency, it will go out and seek private partnership uh, to, bring, to, to create a profit-making uh, opportunity for investment. Uh, and uh, so, so they're not public banks. Uh, they're green in the sense that they have this commitment to invest in this sector. But by and large, the United States really doesn't have a really robust uh, public commitment to building green infrastructure. It, not yet. Uh, there's it's certainly you know, talked about a lot. And we all know, it, you know, we know it needs to happen. And there's a lot of lip service to uh, I would just say, uh, you know, there are some some bills in Congress uh, that would move this forward, but uh, in many cases, the public-private partnership is the model that the United States uh, is, and that the legislators and and policy people refer to, because they don't understand what a public bank uh, could could be doing. Well, uh, you had mentioned just now the Nordic in the Nordic Bank, this beautiful public-public uh, 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 partnership, where the public bank partnered with a public agency. Give us an example of how that might work, let's say here in New Jersey, Uh, in terms of working with um, we have a we have a rail system called New Jersey Transit that needs uh, that a lot of upgrading. Uh, We want there's a desire on the part of uh, a lot of uh, citizen groups to electrify our our transportation fleet and so forth. How would that work if we had a state bank uh, to be able to support that transition through those agencies?
3: Wow, that's a big question. Well, and and I, I've got big ideas on that. And Great,
0: I, I, sure.
2: What
3: I <laughs> whatever, in these kinds of situations, I like to point to the the possibilities uh, of public public collaboration, and um, my my view on public banks is that they should be really become a hub, a center of expertise, not only of of expertise and knowledge on how to coordinate these really massive kind of projects of electrification of, of you know, public transport, it's big, right? Yeah, and but they also of, of course, as a bank, become the source of finance, of capital for that. And one way you can begin to look at this, banks, of course, magnify existing money. So they have they'll have an initial sort of you know capital reserve, but then they can lend out five, 10, 15, 20 times that. Mm. And so they can you know magnify scarce resources, but they also, and this is the model in much of Europe, is that. they need additional capital then they reach out into the international financial markets and then they begin to pull in uh into international flows of finance but on their own terms right they offer bonds and they say you know we'll pay x percent and then the uh financiers come in and say okay we'll buy up your bonds often and increasingly so they're labeled as green bonds so then that provides a sort of check mark for the for the investment Especially, funds, yeah. for the pension funds, and so on, yeah. that money goes into the bank. And then they can, then they direct them. That, that green bond then goes into green investments, like, say, a new solar uh, farm or, or a large offshore wind uh, installation, which are expensive and, and significant you know, in terms of their, their capacity. And so, they, the, in that sense, the, the, the public bank really becomes a center of coordinating that and creating a a large scale investment like a a wind farm that then can feed into the the greening of public transports in ways that is supportive, it creates long-term investment in it, it creates jobs in terms of building the wind farms, and then it supports the community in terms of providing green public transport that is decarbonized, um, and, and, you know, and hopefully creating some knock-on benefits in terms of accessibility and setting conditions around the types of loans they provide and so on for both jobs, but also in terms of decarbonization. There are a number of ways that this can also connect other public-public collaborations. You can think about the ways, I've often talked about the ways that, you know, public water provisioning. Is, is costly and, and has, it takes a lot of energy to pump around water around communities, right? Mm-hmm. But they also have big fields. They often store water predict, or provide the pumping services. You set solar panels there and begin to generate green energy on already existing public land to green the pumping of, of energy around. You can look to public pension fr- funds to begin investing through the public bank into those. And we saw this in COVID, where a number, particularly in Europe, um, through the public banks, uh, public pension funds or uh, public, private or cooperative insurers were directly investing in the public banks to support their efforts to respond to COVID. Hmm. Very similar practices we can learn from in terms of responding to the climate crisis. And it's very low-hanging fruit. It's something that can be coordinated as a matter of policy, but it takes... A political vision or a political will uh, when willing to sort of create that legacy and a public bank really is about creating a legacy and we see this around the world that where they were created off many many cases decades ago when the crisis comes they're in place and capable of responding and without that then you you get all kinds of like the messed up responses like we see in the united kingdom or in the us where you know the response support funds are getting hived off for all kinds of nefarious projects and so on. And they're not going to the public purpose for which they were meant.
0: Yeah, we certainly saw it in a great example in North Dakota. Not only was the emergence of the Bank of North Dakota 102 years ago, a response to the abusive, exploitive uh, aspect of Wall Street finance. But not too many years after it was founded, the, the uh, uh, a, a fire and flood on the Grant, on Grand Forks, wiped out uh, the the uh, North Dakota city as well as the twin city across the river in Minneapolis, or in Minnesota. Uh, the public bank in North Dakota stepped right in. They were there before uh, anybody else and said, hey, here's some money. Clean it up. Let's get things back in order. Uh, and, whereas the, and they only lost 3% of their, of their uh, population. Across the way, Minnesota had to go to New York, had to pay f- high cost, and they lost about almost 20% of their population. So a huge uh, difference. Uh, in potential yeah. when the people are in uh in in the driver's seat
3: you yeah. mentioned I, I would really emphasize that well and uh, because it is such an important yeah like sort of foundational difference that public purpose and i hear this time and again within public banks that at times of crisis we function according to our public purpose in the case of, of the better public banks and that this is important it's an ethos a culture of the bank Mm -hmm. And in, you know, just as one past, you know, interview I did many years ago, at a time of crisis, I was talking to a local bank manager, a public bank in another country and said, yeah, when it starts raining, we don't put our umbrella away. Right. And Uh in terms of the public bank, when the crisis hits, that's exactly, you know, one of the moments when we really need to have this. And we're in a crisis now, climate crisis, a COVID crisis. And the evidence speaks for itself that those countries with public banks and public banks that are accountable and transparent and function according to public purpose are making a fundamental difference in those countries and communities' capacity to respond to both COVID and the climate crisis.
0: You mentioned uh, public banks that are well-run uh, and have a foundational root commitment. Uh, are there What kind of examples do you have for public banks that don't work with that kind of integrity?
3: So, in we see some of this became exposed in the lead up to the 2079 global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Europe, you see some of the local caja uh, populares, like community banks, or in Germany, there is some sort of publicly uh, owned or partially publicly owned investment banks or landed banks that have begun to, yeah. to, to speculate mm-hmm. on. Subprime mortgages. And the problem there is that they were given, they began to take on a mandate to maximize profitability rather than maximize public purpose. And once that happens, then public banks begin to function very much like private profit seeking banks and they often get into trouble. Um, any observer of public banks can also point to a number of historical examples where they've certainly been abused by political authorities right. through corruption and so on and cause problems. And this is precisely why that last D in my title, democratization, is so important. We mm-hmm. absolutely must demand of past, existing, and future public banks that they are accountable and transparent and create mechanisms both within that bank for democratic governance But also sort of transparent rules that really enforce that and make that a legal requirement that public banks have to respond and report to the public on its activities and be accountable and responsible for what they do. There's no there's no avoiding it. We must actually we must demand that of of new public
0: banks. And, and that's where your word just comes in uh, for me, uh, that our banks should be green, but also just. And so that part of the agenda of the bank is to in, reclaim, recover, recoup, reinvigorate, uh, renew uh, our uh, relationships, our commitment to each other in the form of uh, of public policy. And of course, in public policy, it can't happen without the financial resources uh, to do that. Um, and one, of the, one of the aspects of the loans that you were talking about was conditionality. Again, that conditionality seems to reflect that. Could you talk a little bit about uh, how a public bank would condition uh, being a pass-through for other investments? Uh, you touched on it a minute ago.
3: Sure, the conditionality is, is a, a means of enacting or effecting public purpose and the goals and aspirations of the community. So if you have, and this, this has been an increasing discussion within the public bank movement in the US, but it's part of the way public banks function around much of the world. So for example, if it's public purpose, if it has a green mandate or a mission, the public banks like the German KFW or the Finnish funds or, in fact, the French, the, the Dutch, <laughs> let's go on. I give you any number of public banks that do this, set right. conditions on in terms of the loan that they're offering um, that they must decarbonize. They must reduce net carbon emissions in one way or another. There are other ones where they also, you know, we can begin speaking about conditionalities that set requirements for the recipient. To ensure just labor requirements, so that you know there are permanent, long-term jobs out of that come with the investment. So if you're building a large, you know, wind farm off the coast of New Jersey, well, let's make sure that those jobs are are permanent, long-term, um, and sustainable jobs. Similarly, we can also begin to discuss things like um, you know, gender equity uh, representation and and. Be building those into the loans and inform form of conditionality and, you know, depending on the relation with the government, they can, the government itself can, you know, create all kinds of incentives to really drive loans in a particular direction and to encourage society to, to move along. So again, uh, the German KFW mm. will often provide loans to municipalities or to industry uh, based on a decarbonization or a sustainability agenda already it preferable long-term supportive rates. But if, yeah. the, if the municipality or the industry exceeds the expectations of the loan, then they get a, even a, you know, a top-up bonus right? wow. uh, in terms yeah. of the repayment. And so it, it really yeah. is able to bend and, and really begin to reshape society and, and markets and the ways in which we produce energy or use energy in a more sustainable and just uh, trajectory. Uh, a real push um, that I've been seeing both from within uh, municipalities and communities, but also within public banks for things like retrofitting. So it's great you know, to put heat pumps in houses or to change, you know, decarbonize or move to electrical heating of large buildings, but until you begin to retrofit those buildings and, and, and make the buildings themselves energy efficient, much of that you know, investment in, in, in better, more efficient heating units is going to be wasted. I think there's such a promising and important role that public banks can play in terms of retrofitting community housing, so existing public housing stocks, so social housing. Uh, Encourage uh, that in new builds, uh, in terms of high quality, energy efficient homes, but also um, in terms of industrial retrofits, providing the kinds of You know, loans, supportive programs, but also building up the expertise and the know-how of how to enact and to effect that kind of change within the bank is an absolutely key element to the future of public banks. And really, if you're thinking in a place like New Jersey, of of a, a starting point for a new public bank, well, create one with a mission to retrofit houses, and you've got an immediate market you've got an immediate need, you've got something that's going to respond to the, the necessities of, of, uh, of transitioning uh, to a low-carbon future, and you're going to be creating long-term sustainable jobs and knowledge within your community. I mean, it's a win-win-win-win-win type yes. of you know, uh, you know, uh, project that kicks off a public bank, gives it a project, builds its expertise and capacity, And connects it to its community so that bank is is seen to be doing something for the people who own it right away, rather than, you know, going off in some obscure corner where who knows what the public bank is doing. Let's connect it to community. Let's show that it's doing something for us and, and with us. I just... You know, I'm I, I'm not American by birth, but I'm connected very much to the community yeah. and and to the the movements within the U.S. And I think there is a real opportunity here in New Jersey and and in many you know states across the you know United States of America to begin creating this legacy for the future of the capacity to democratically command the money and resources in your community to. Create the kind of change—positive, green, and just future—that you want to see. And without doing this, you're you're spinning your wheels in mud. And it really is sort of one of those necessary things that has to occur, uh, you know, to create the change you want. And I would just say, you know, jump on board. It's time to, you know, really uh,
0: solidify that political will behind it and, and move forward. You know, the US is kind of pulling up the tail end in this public banking world, but uh, you've, you've beautifully described how public banks are about creating a different bottom line, not about profitability, but about relationship around society, around sustainability, regenerative spirit, uh, and also integrity, transparency, accountability. These are all things that we don't have in our financial matrix right now. Uh, So as New Jersey and the other states around the country continue their discovery of how to do this, um, we really appreciate your leadership, Thomas, in, uh, in showing the way and articulating the particular aspects that can be done, realized, and, and aimed for as we move forward. Thanks once again, Thomas. My pleasure. Dr. Thomas Marwa is a research associate and a lecturer at the University of London. He's a global scholar and academic on public banks and has a new book called Public Banks, Decarbonization, Definancialization, and Democratization. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting EllenBrown.com. For more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Money.